<laughs> What'd you say? Yeah, Cito and I were talking about the speakers we'd have, and we had to have a token white. <laughs> Trouble with tokens is that they're not too committed. They flake out. We've got to go look for another one. <laughs> well, I've been trying to get along in Hong Kong, and I've uh, got an easy talk because it's primarily how I've been struggling through fitting in to Hong Kong. And uh, I fake these people out because I look Chinese, but that only goes as long as I keep my mouth shut. And then <laughs> I found out a few things, though, learned from Cito. I know now that, uh, I know for sure that Adam and Eve were not Chinese people. And you know how I know that? Because they would have eaten a snake. <laughs> See, Cito, they got it. Oh. There's a, they eat snake soup over there, and I haven't gotten used to that, but that's a delicacy, snake, snake soup. And also, uh, anyway, I thought today that uh, I would tell you a little bit about um, my experience in this. And if you think you were intimidated by Cito, I wasn't. I thought I could do it, but it didn't take me long to realize that uh, this process is uh, a little bit more than, as Cito said in the very beginning, a little bit more than diagrams on the board. And uh, it, uh, it is a long process, but you just gradually, it becomes part of you. And I thought I would share a little bit about what I've been doing over there, how I've tried to uh, adapt some of the things that Cito taught me into the ministry, how I've actually changed my philosophy of ministry from um, what I had when I graduated from Dallas Seminary back in 84. I want to tell you about Hong Kong too. Don't let me forget to tell you about Hong Kong. At lunch, the guys were asking me about Hong Kong and I had just forgotten, taken for granted all the things that uh, that's very interesting and neat about that city. So if I forget, I think what we'll do is uh, I'll try to quit as early as I can so we can just have a question and answers back and forth. And during that time, you can ask me about what, what Hong Kong is like, what TV is like in Hong Kong, anything about Hong Kong. But you know, I, um, I'm very touched about being back here. And I love this place. And uh, I love the, more than just the weather. I love a lot of you guys here. And... Uh, Many of you all have been really encouraged us in, in, in when we went. So we are very grateful, of course, to the body here in Colorado Springs, and we feel very close to you. And so it's a special privilege, uh, for me anyway, to um, <clears throat> be able to come back and tell you about these past two years. I've, I've really longed for this time to come back and tell you about all the experiences that we've had. Thanks for your prayers and all the support you've given us. Now, Hong Kong as an arena is just, I'm very excited about the place. It is one of the most exciting cities in the world to live in. And uh, I went over there, I got recruited by Cito to go over there and join this lay movement. And the lay movement there, God has his hand on it. And um, don't get near Cito because he'll convince you to go over there. If you don't want to end up like me, stay away from the guy. But anyway, after a couple of months of being on the pity pot about it, I love it. I think it's, it's just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I think God is developing Hong Kong as an arena where he is going to display all this rumor about the lay ministry that really this is really was his plan from the very beginning. Because as you know, Hong Kong's life is dominated by that political event that happened uh, four or five years ago when England signed over its sovereign rights to Hong Kong over to the communist Chinese. So in 1997, Hong Kong is gonna revert 
back to the Chinese. They always thought they had it. They resented the fact that, that uh, England took it away from them. It happened uh, 99. It happened uh, back in uh, the 1800s, 1898 to be exact, when the, the, the British were growing their opium in India, shipping it to China and selling it to the Chinese, using the proceeds to buy tea and shipping that to England. And after a while, the Chinese finally woke up from their stupor and realized that uh, there's something wrong with this, and they went and had their own Boston Tea Party of sorts. They boarded these ships and threw all this opium in the, in the water. Anyway, their little revolution did not turn out as well as ours. The British came back and kicked them in the behind for it and extrapolated a lot of concessions, one of which was a 99-year lease on Hong Kong. And the Brits have been ashamed of this for a long time now. So they decided that, well, 99 years is enough. So they just gave it all back. And of course, the Chinese who have gone through a lot of trouble, the Chinese in Hong Kong, who have gone through a lot of trouble to get out of there in the first place, have really resented that because Thatcher just pulled the rug out right out from under the place and it really has caused a stir. Just briefly, the, uh, the pace of life is very frenetic in Hong Kong. Somebody described it as a New York City times 10. It's a, like, it's a New York City of Asia. It's a, it's a wide open free market. There are no restrictions except on drugs, but everything else is wide open. So everything in the world comes to Hong Kong. And in fact, Hong Kong goes to other countries and tries to attract industry to Hong Kong, saying it's not just the, free, the cheap labor that we have, but we can, al we can get almost any uh, material or, you know, raw or, or things, whether it's bolts or hinges or whatever you need, almost cheaper in Hong Kong than any place else. Uh, in, in the Bible study, there was a guy that said, you know, I've, I'm in touch with five Boeing 747s, bid wanted. Somebody had five Boeing 747s for sale, and he came to Hong Kong and he sold them. We're drinking Greek Coke. Uh, all, you know, there's this Coca-Cola with no English words on the can except the word Coca-Cola. Everything else is in Greek. How did that get to Hong Kong? I don't know, but somebody in Athens had an overrun on coke. And um, they got stuck with it, so ship it to Hong Kong. So we're all drinking Greek Coke now. <laughs> you know, and everything comes. <clears throat> the business, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very efficient place. The place hums with efficiency. It really works. The labor force is, is very reasonable, very well trained, very efficient. The businessman reigns supreme in that town. They, uh, for example, there is a group, a committee called the Basic Law Drafting Committee that's been formed to try to draft an independent constitution for Hong Kong after the British leave. It's a, colon it's a colonial rule. There's a governor, it's a, it's a, there's no democracy. Well, anyway, there's a group that's decided that we ought to see if we can make a democracy out of this place before the communists come in. Well, of the 71, there's a group of businessmen on that who have pulled away and said, you guys that are non-businessmen, you guys don't count. We're the ones that should draft this, this, uh, this uh, constitution. We're the ones that built Hong Kong. We're the ones that employ Hong Kong. We pay Hong Kong. And we're the ones that are gonna run this place. And they just actually declared that in the newspaper. I figure there's about 30,000 players in Hong Kong and the rest of the five and a half million support them. 30,000 people run the city and everybody else either works for them or support them. Now the ministry that I went to was a ministry to, that, to the businessman. And I've joined uh, in a loose, in a loose uh, federation of sorts because the ministry in Hong Kong is very decentralized. It's not, there's no formal organization. But I'm part of this lay network that CETO started nine years ago. And my ministry is to the, uh, the business and professional man of Hong Kong. <clears throat> you know, and as such, I have found that 
he really basically wrestles with the same issues that you wrestle with here in Colorado Springs, except even with greater, greater intensity. Sometimes as I, think, as I listen to you guys that talk about some of the things you're struggling with, it's really a common theme around the world, except in Hong Kong, really, it, it is a very intense situation. As I thought about, you know, when somebody said, well, what are those issues? It's just like that book says, money, power, and sex. Those are the main issues with the businessman. So we spent a lot of time, as Cito said, talking about these issues. You know, what do you ultimately trust in? What do, who do you look to to meet your needs? Everybody is awash in money, but, and, and money is very easy to earn in Hong Kong. Some guy just got the idea that uh, he could sell a sign to Marlboro, so he went to this big warehouse that was owned by the communist Chinese, and he said to them, why don't you let me borrow the side of this building, and I'll give you $30,000 a month just for the use of the building, just sign here. So the communist Chinese who own a lot of property in Hong Kong, they just signed. Then he went to Philip Morris. He said, how would you like the most spectacular sign for Marlboro in Hong Kong? And they said, how much? He said, well, after figuring out all the costs, just 200 grand a month. So he put on this spectacular sign of Marlboro across this Chinese warehouse. He pays him 30 grand and keeps the other 170. And uh, there's just tons of stories like that. Somebody comes up with an idea, and you just go ahead and do it. Um, they're more open about their immorality. Every, you know, if you're going to do it, they just, they just have their mistresses, and it's a very common thing. It's a very important perk to business, uh, business deals. You know, if you want to sign a contract and stuff, they say, well, we're coming to visit in Hong Kong. I hope you can take care of us. And that's what you need to do if you want to get a contract. And uh, power is very important. Recognition, titles, you know, there are knights and everybody wants to be a knight. Believe it or not, there are Chinese knights, and you have to call them sir, you call their wives lady. And it's very important who you are. If you look at Cito's business card, he's got all this alphabet soup after it, because everybody puts all their degrees after their, after their uh, name. But uh, there is a, a need for a great hope, and I thought I'd just talk to you a little bit about what I tried to do. Uh, Cito gave me this talk. Well, I said, that is no sweat. We'll just go ahead and dive into it. We can do this. But uh, it's a little different. Uh, not to say that this isn't a very important framework, but I'm not even into this establishing. I'm, I'm, in the, I'm working according to this model but I'm working just between evangelism and establishment. Like I'd like to figure out a way to get the guys that I'm working with into even wanting to be established, to give them that hunger and that hope that they would submit you know, to this kind of stuff. So what do you do? I mean, you hit town, and how do you get started? Well, you take the one guy you know. I mean, it's all relationships again. And, uh, and, you, and you, you think about, you know, what you have here. Now, for sure, we're, we do not have another Western religion. I mean, to try to put on, you know, the kind of cultural American religion that we have in the States, it's not going to work. And, um, you know, for example, there's less and less emphasis on the institutional church in Hong Kong. You can imagine what... Uh, what church building program, what, what has happened to church building programs, for example. I mean, who in the world is going to give any money to a church building program? And, but what, what we're trying to talk about is an eternal hope. We're trying to give an alternative, a meaningful purpose to life instead of the empty, untrustworthy existence that everybody does have in Hong Kong. Of all these models that Tito has talked about, I've, we have found this, this EBS model to be one of the best. It really is a good model. And uh, Miltini, my wife, has done 10 of them, and I've done five of them. 
And what it is, is uh, just four sessions in the book of John using chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And I got with Cito, and he, he really helped me and another guy. Uh, we took notes feverishly, but he talked us through on how to do the CBS. The big picture being, we use chapter 1 of John to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And then he showed us how to use some of the key words in John chapter 1, like word, life, the Lamb of God. Uh, he is in contrast to Moses and the law. Grace and truth comes from Jesus Christ, for example. So we, we use John chapter 1 just for one purpose. Who is Jesus Christ? And uh, one of the verses, at verse 18, it says, you know, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, a Son of the Father who has been in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that's usually a high point of that Bible study when guys come to realize that Jesus Christ explains God. You'll never see God, but you've got a window on God through Jesus Christ. Then we use chapter 2 to ask and answer the question, what did he come to do? And the two incidents in chapter 2, one, the, the wine incident at Cana, and secondly, throwing those guys out of the, throwing the, uh, the uh, money changers out of the temple, we, we use to say he's come to meet your needs, both temporally, I mean, how mundane can you get for you know, running out of wine at a temple, but Jesus cared. But that wasn't his main thing. He's really come to meet your spiritual needs. And that is, uh, that was articulated in the, in the passage, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And it explains there that he was talking about his own crucifixion, that he came to die for man's sins. And then we use chapter 3 to talk about the need to be born again. And there's a lot of things that, that it doesn't exactly explain what that born-again experience is. But if you look at it and use some you know, Bible study techniques, you can see eight or nine different things about the born-again experience that you can construct you know, your own understanding of what that means. And then finally in chapter 4, using that incident, that conversation, the longest recorded one-on-one -on -one conversation between Jesus and anybody in the Bible, that woman at the well, we ask and answer the question, how do you become born again? How do you get it? And uh, it uh, covers a number of issues. And... As Cito says, by the time you get to the third or the fourth week, there's blood all over the place. Guys are getting convicted. And uh, the main benefit of this is, is what it does to your partner. You never do an EBS alone. You always do it with another Christian. And non-Christians always outnumber the Christians. So we need a minimum of three non-Christians. Three non-Christians, two of us. I'll lead it, and that guy will be my backup. Maybe try to get f five or four to make three, because somebody always drops out. And what happens to that partner of yours, that's a discipling process. I mean, he's a businessman. He won't submit to, you know, get your notebook out and take this down. But the stuff gets, he gets, the stuff gets caught. He starts getting the vision. He really experiences some of these ministry basics. For example... In, in the beginning, it was hard to get an EBS. I started with one guy I knew, a guy named John Chi, who was in the leather business, and I got him to do one with me. But after a while, after the word gets out, people start getting changed, start getting converted. That particular guy you're working with gets all excited because through the process, he gets a heart for men. And then, and then it just, they just come to you, can we do an EBS? Four sessions. Well, here's the conditions. You go out and find three pagans. We want genuine, non-Christian pagans. We'll do an EBS. Now, right there, that cuts out half of them because trouble with the Christian community is you're just not involved with non-Christians. And that's one of the problems. We just have to be out there in the marketplace with non-Christians and have relationships with them. And that, don't tell me how many non-Christians you have as a friend. Let's ask non-Christians and how many non-Christians would say that you are their friend. And when you ask them, cash in your chits, when you, when you come and just let's have an investigative Bible study, study, you don't call it an EBS, 
and uh, commit to four nights. And that in itself is a big hurdle. But while we do that, in doing that, we, we spend time praying with the people. I remember, uh, uh, and this is, a, this is again the, the, the methodology, you, you, you teach them how to pray. So before we started our first session, I got together with uh, this guy named Philip, and we had a 45-minute prayer walk, praying for every one of the guys coming. You know, and some of these guys, they say, you know, yeah, I went through an EBS with you and I've learned a lot, but the one thing I learned for, the one thing I learned the most, the one thing that really, you really taught me was you really taught me how to pray for men. Because we prayed before every session. Before every session, we have to get with the guy and pray for the guys. And then he learns a lot about how to minister. First thing we tell him to do is shut up. Don't you say a word. That's important. You've got to learn to listen. See, all of us, when we want to go out and minister, we go run out there and we've got to tell them all this stuff. Just tell them, you just, you just shut up. Because if you answer something, these guys will not say a word. So he, he has to stay there. I said, you want, I want you to watch the people. Tell me about Take notes. Tell me where the lights are going on or where we're offending somebody. Pray for me. And so, and so it, you know, if, if we get into a jam and it gets real quiet, then he, has, then he has to come in. But we coach him on these basic tools and he really learns, he really learns the power of just sitting there and listening and rooting for these guys quietly and praying for these guys. And by George, he falls in love with the guys. And then, uh, when it's all over, uh, we, don't, we don't mention Christ, we don't mention uh, your need to be converted, we just talk, we create the need. And then, after it's over, we go two-on-one this time, before they outnumbered us. Now it's me and the partner, we go and, one, and, and meet with each guy, each guy individually for lunch. And it's at, at, it's at lunch that we ask for the order. And we do it with a phrase like, is there any reason, Chan or Wong or whatever, why you don't right now give your life to Jesus Christ? Is there any reason? You know, and they usually say, no. Well, then, then we say, well, why don't we just go back to your office or even right here and we show you how to do it. And, and then I, can, I let my partner sometimes ask, ask the question and he's really frightened but, he, but, he, but he's get, he gets four or three minimum or four experiences of asking for the order. And he needs to learn how to do that. And we ask him one-on-one, -on -one, is there any reason why you don't right now want to become a Christian? I can show you how to do it right now. So we found that very effective. And the main thing it does is that it disciples your partner. The main action is with the partner. He doesn't know it. He thinks he's on the sideline and he's helping and he's watching you do it. But what happens is that he gets it. And then he comes back and he says, man, that was so powerful. I mean, you know, we, now we got Chan and Wong converted. Now what do we do with him? And I said, well, listen, I'm kind of busy, but I'm going to teach you how to follow these guys up. And so he, he, he's got them. And I'll come in there and we'll start a little study. And that's how we started our, our, our Bible studies with these guys taking care of their own guys, their own men. And then he comes back and says, let's do another one because uh, I got some really important guys, Tommy. I was just sort of trying it out. And now he's going to have his real important friends. He says, let's do another one. And I said, well, you do it. He says, no, I'm not ready to do this. No way. So I said, okay, we'll do one more. But this time, when we go through it, you better get it this time because you're doing the next one. <laughs> and boy, they're in there taking notes. They're not, you know, they're not going to talk for sure. They're just taking notes. And, uh, and it really gets them involved in the battle. The other thing I learned, you know, primarily from the guys here in the States, is just the, the, the whole principle of serving men. There really is no agenda. We, we meet them on their turf, meet them on their needs. And it's a process. If you if you happen to if you're able to convert a guy through you know whatever four spiritual laws, it's only because somebody else has done a lot of groundwork, done a lot of spade work. Evangelism is not an event. You know, we teach the guys evangelism is a process, and your job is to try to move a guy along 
into a closer, more vital relationship with Jesus Christ, either by converting him and starting the process or ratcheting him up to another level of faith. And so wherever we are in the community, when we see a guy, we try to ratchet him up to the next level. <clears throat> and uh, this idea of being a servant, you know, the, I know Cito does things with his guys uh, just to train his people to be servants. I mean, they'll just take on projects. And, you know, that's really infected me. I was recently at a walk through the Bible uh, training uh, for new instructors. There's 54 new instructors. And I had just come from the States and I hit Atlanta. And here were all these vocational Christian workers, VCWs, in this room, all trying to, all prima donnas. And I was... Uh, I was so, you know, it was such a shock to me because I'm, I'm really used to being a layman. And, uh, and there, there, an incident came up where we, had all, we, had all, we were all sitting around this pool eating our meals and we all had these paper plates and there was no place to throw them. You know, and it just was instinctively, I got up and got the bag, I got a garbage bag and went around and collected the plates. But nobody moved. Nobody got up, it was an obvious need, it's a, it's a foot washing situation like in John 13, and it just, it's just good to practice it and to encourage, and Cito is always encouraging us, just look for ways to serve, and just practice it, keeps you humble. And there's, you guys here in Colorado Springs have served me, it's a good example, and it's, it's contagious. Guys here, you chauffeur me around all day, it just pick me up at the airport, that's, that's just servanthood. And so it's spreading. A businessman doesn't serve anybody in Hong Kong. He gets served. They have servants at home. They have chauffeurs. They've got secretaries. They've got guys that do everything. Everything gets done for you. Your car gets washed every day. Your kids get taken to school. Your, your stuff gets picked up from the laundry for you. Your, your, you know, your Reservations are made. You know, you, everybody serves you, but to teach these guys how to serve, you have to. You actually have to have programs so that it comes into your mind when you see a need. The other thing that's helped is that <clears throat> when you really serve a guy and you have no, you have nothing you want from him. Then that's different for Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, the guys are are always getting solicited. I mean, the world comes to Hong Kong and they're pretty savvy and some, some guy tell, selling real estate in the States or some guy selling some municipal bonds or somebody trying to go into a euro dollar market or somebody got a deal in Australia and so everybody wants to use everybody and it's all connections. And if you're on the scene and you don't want to do it, you don't need anything from them that is very different. And they're very suspicious and it's taken me a couple years to get them to finally believe that I really don't want anything from them. But that is a powerful, powerful platform. And um, thanks to having all my needs met, I really didn't have a thing on my mind. Well, I did have something on my mind. Everybody was a prospect. Everybody's a prospect for God. That was what was on my mind. And I wanted, everybody was a prospect to be served. And that's the edge that Lauren Sandy was talking about, the edge that we have. We think about men's souls. Everybody I ever came in contact with was a prospect. Um, <clears throat> we develop relationships. And I'm not a natural person who, likes, who loves people. In fact, I find many of the businessmen in Hong Kong unlovable people. And you know the old saying, you know, we want to be your servants, but don't, don't treat me like one. Some of these guys, they get into a habit of treating you like a servant, and you have to eat a lot of crow and stuff. But uh, love, as Lawrence says, freely accepts another and seeks their good. And that, that really is a, a model that we try to follow. I'm trying to follow in Hong Kong. And it's a very, very, you, you know, you've got a monopoly on a whole new new product that is a short supply. If you think it's a short supply here, it's a very big short supply in Hong Kong. I mean, the Chinese are very critical people. And I guess it's the, the schooling they have or the, or the Confucius background. It's a city that loves to shoot their wounded, I like to say. 
love is in short supply. <clears throat> People do not accept themselves, and the men are suckers for love. I mean, I'm a sucker for love, and when you start loving men, they're just putty, and they really respond. And uh, we serve them on their terms. I mean, I've ended up writing resumes. I've written, helped them write a business plan. I go listen to their presentation to the community chest. You know, uh, I go and, uh, you know, we'll help them with their Bible study or uh, go crew on their sailboats. I mean, I don't like sailing. And I always <laughs> end up losing my cookies and half the time I'm out there. But sometimes they need, like you need a fourth for bridge, they need another guy to, to go out with them. So, so I go out sailing. It sounds like hard duty, but to me, to me, uh, I don't do too well on it. Let me close by giving you some principles that I've learned. <clears throat> I just wrote down a few principles very quickly here as to what I've learned when I've, I've really tried to uh, get involved in the ministry. The ministry as defined by the special needs of Hong Kong which is a ministry oriented around the laity. The mandate for China is going to be the laity. If you want to put your chips on the vocational Christian worker, I think there's high risk. I think there could come a time when China closes the churches, takes everybody that's a missionary and sends them home. And what, is that going to hurt the church? Well, not if, not if what we're doing has any effect because left, what's, who's going to be left in that city? They're going to be what I like to call Rambos, Chinese Rambos for Christ. <laughs> Lethal, trained, operate by himself. He's a waiter. He's an accountant. He's a banker. Nobody suspects waiters. But you put, <laughs> you put that waiter... You put a, a pagan waiter next to that waiter and they start working together for six months, I tell you, that guy's going to get him. The guy is going to love him into the kingdom. And plus, after he gets him in the kingdom, he's going to stay with him and train him and bring him to the point where he can reproduce. And that's what, we're, that's what we got in Hong Kong. And as you can't see it. It's invisible. It's among the laity. You can do anything you want to stamp out the church, but you'll never, you'll never stop the cause of Christ. Now, the principles I've learned. What is the message? You've got to keep the message simple. I mean, our, our messages get pretty convoluted, but the message is not reforming society. I think the Christian church here in the United States has kind of screwed the message up. I mean, why, why would we want to reform society in Hong Kong? Well, I am personally against abortion, and I am personally against pornography and apartheid, but that's not the issue in Hong Kong. You know, we got to depopulate hell and populate heaven as fast as we can. We got a little bit of time left, and we're training. We're training rambles. We're we're training reproducers. <clears throat> and when we talk to the guys about becoming Christians, now even Jesus Christ and what He has done for you—that you know—forgive me for saying it, but that somehow that is that somehow sometimes doesn't grab them. I think the issue is sin. The, your problem, I say, is sin. The reason why things are not going well, and n nowhere are things going well. You know, they're making money, but in many areas things are not going well. Your problem is not because we're on some evolutionary scale and we're like three quarters of the way up, and if you give us another million years, we'll figure out how to eliminate war and eliminate pestilence and eliminate famine and the diseases and the violence that we do to each other? No way. You can give us uh, untold numbers of millions of more years and we're not going to be able to fix our problem. Our problem is not due to economic systems. It's neither communism nor socialism nor capitalism nor Marxism. The problem is sin. The problem is not due to your lack of education. We're all way more educated beyond our intelligence. The problem is sin. You can't get your act together because you've got sin in your life. You need a savior. Now here where the focus comes on Jesus Christ on the cross, 
God's plan to deliver you from sin. And furthermore, guys, I say to them, sin is hazardous to your health. I am so absolutely convinced of that. Just like we tell the communists, capitalism is the best system for producing goods and services. You guys could never compete with us in the markets. Capitalism is always going to beat you. Well, I also tell them, sin is always going to beat you. You'll never get away with it. Sin is hazardous to your health. And some guys say to me, well, I kind of agree with you. And as I look over your big ten, I'll go with you on nine out of ten. There's not one, I just don't, I don't believe it. I said, in all of them, and the one, of course, is, is adultery, fornication. All of it is hazardous to your health. Believe me, it may not get you now, but it'll get you later. And they really, they know in their heart, and they cannot be delivered. They're locked into it. I mean, even with the one, one out of ten that they don't believe me, God has recently introduced AIDS just because he loves us. He loves us and he, and he has grace upon us and since we're so stupid and it takes us a long time to get it, he says, ta-da, here we have AIDS. Now do you get it? <laughs> Sin is hazardous to your health. <clears throat> By the way, there's big prejudice against uh, Americans down in Asia. There used to be prejudice against uh, Chinese and the Chinese have these stories about how some the British Taipans had signs on some of their clubs, you know, no dogs or Chinese allowed. Now, we got signs on Hong Kong whorehouses, no whites allowed, because whites are carriers of AIDS, and they're importing AIDS to Asia. They get plenty of business from the Chinese. Why do they need to take a risk? What is the... Uh, um, so anyway, once you once you you develop the need, develop the need regarding sin. You know as well as I do, sin is hazardous to your health, and it'll just take time, and you'll know it. If you don't believe me, you know it in your heart. You want to, you want to be delivered? Well, I've got the answer. There's no other way for deliverance except in Jesus Christ, and God has gone through a lot of problems to show you that sin is hazardous to your health. He put his son on the cross to be separated from him. He who knew no sin, he who never even was separated from God, even when he was on earth, walked with God like that, was cut off, and he lost it, screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his cool. Because that moment was when sin came upon him. That, was, that moment was far worse than the physical pain of the crucifixion. And God has taken a lot of, gone to a lot of trouble to show you that. And in that act, in Jesus dying for you, is your deliverance. You can be delivered eternally from the effects, and, you can be, and, and even temporally from the regular daily effects of, of the problems of your sin. You can be delivered from that, just as a little peak on what it is. Eternally, you can't imagine how bad it is for you. You know, we, uh, we get a lot of neat questions when you work with uh, new believers. One of the neatest questions, and you always have to be ready, the basics, as Cito keeps stressing, keep hitting the basics. Never forget, no matter how old of a Christian you are, just, if you have to write them down, you just got to get the basics and you always got to impart the basics to people you're working with. One of the neat questions that was asked uh, in one of my wife's Bible studies after they were praying, somebody, and you've got to set the environment so they can ask you the questions. Because people were always afraid to ask dumb questions. My wife was asked, why, do, why every time you pray, do you pray in Jesus' name? You know, you've got to be ready to answer these questions. Why pray in Jesus' name? Well, I've got to share with you this answer because I think it's the neatest way to answer it. My wife thought about it and she said, the reason why we pray in Jesus' name it's because he's the one that paid for the call. That really hits it on the head, I think. He's the one that paid for the call. Now, what is the model? <clears throat> I 
I, know I came out of Dallas Seminary, and my model of ministry was the preacher, the Bible teacher. And uh, the illustration that was given to me in Hong Kong helps me to think about it in terms of the contrast between models of ministry. And that is the illustration between the frog and the lizard. Now, if you think of the frog, how does he eat? When the frog wants to go out to eat, he just comes outside and he just sits there. And he just waits and the food comes to him and when it gets nearby, he zaps it. And he just sits and food comes to him. The lizard, on the other hand, comes out. He doesn't sit, but he hunts. And he goes out and he has to get his prey and he has to get his own food. If a lizard did what a frog did, he'd starve to death. Now, in the Christian community, we have frogs and lizards. Now, the Dallas Seminary graduate is a frog, and the pastors are frogs. And Walt Henderson, by the way, is a frog. I mean, you just put out a flyer and say, Walt Henderson's speaking, and the food comes to him. And uh, everywhere he goes, I travel with him. They just come to him. He doesn't have to do a thing. It just comes to him. You know, but that is not... That he can never reproduce frogs after, he, after himself because if we did what Walt Hendrickson did, does, nobody's going to come and hear us speak. Well, well for me, I, you know, I, uh, maybe... Because I, I come back from Hong Kong, see it all night, so we get you guys to come. I mean, this is a privilege to have you guys come and hear us. But you can't just say, I'm a... I'm a Dallas grad or I came from Hong Kong. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to come and hear you. You need to learn to hunt. And frogs can never teach lizards to hunt. And that's why frogs never reproduce. <laughs> you know, if you go, you know, if you go out and emulate what your pastor does, you know, you, you know, we're all, we have different gifts. And... Lizards need to have models of, of lizard behavior on how to hunt. And, and that's really the recruiting process, how to get a convert into wanting to be established, you know, how to be involved with the pagan community, how to have the relationships with him, how to try to make him hungry, how to establish the common ground, love him, serve him. That's a hunt. How to, how to make him hungry, how to give him hope. And then pop the question, you know, if you want, I'd, I'd be willing to give my life to help you, you know, write your own manual, something like that. The ministry is not just coming to a pulpit and opening the Bible and giving content. I mean, that's part of it, and we can't cut these guys out. I mean, they're, you know, the body of Christ is a big body. You know, there are little toes, maybe, as part of the body. And so we, we include them. But the ministry is what Len Little did for Bob Adams. You know, or what Lauren Sandy did with Charlie Riggs. That's the ministry. That's real ministry. And you don't, you don't have to go to seminary to do that. You just have to learn to be out there and love people. Some, uh, I was asking Walt... Uh, we were talking about the ministry model. We were going to talk about it later on after this. And uh, we were talking about who we, who we thought really knew how to do ministry. And I said, I have my idea of my model of ministry. They were all frogs, of course. And Walt wanted to introduce me to a lot of lizards. And, uh, and then the, and the, the thing where he really converted me was, I, he said to me, I'll tell you how you can tell who's doing the ministry. Just interview their men. Don't, don't talk to him. Ask him who his men are and talk to them. And so I, I literally took him out. I just, I said, I'm going to leave you. And there's a guy on the West Coast that I idolized. I thought he was the greatest minister, graduate of Dallas Seminary. And I found out he had, he had transferred to another church. I went to that church. I mean, it was in the boondocks. And I I stayed with him and I asked him, could you just name, give me a name of five or six of your top guys, your elders or whatever. He gave me the list of five or six of their top guys and I met those guys. I'll tell you, it was sad. Oh, sure they were elders in the church. Sure they were looked up to. But they were absolutely zeros in terms of 
hard for men in terms of understanding their mandate. The Great Commission was not a corporate commission. It's an individual mandate. They, they, they knew very little about the Bible. They had no ministry skills and character, even character problems. And I, I was convinced, if you really want to understand what, what ministry is and, and who is doing the ministry, meet their men. <clears throat> what is the energizer? <clears throat> As I think about what it takes to be qualified, you know, it certainly you know, is not a Dallas degree or theological education. I, I think Bible knowledge is a factor, but I would not rank it as I would maybe rank it fourth or fifth. And as I was thinking, what does it take to be involved in the ministry? I've come across five things, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and I would call them more limiting factors. And it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of negatively thinking about this way. And in, and in my own life, I've, it's limited me. And a limiting factor is, I mean, say you had 100 cakes, say you had 100 pounds of flour, 100 pounds of sugar, and only two cups of chocolate. How many cups, how many chocolate cakes could you make with those ingredients? Well, your limiting factor is not your flour or your sugar. Your limiting factor is the chocolate. And these are things in our life that I've really become aware of as I've gone out into the field to try to start a ministry. And the first one is devotional life. If you're little for God, you cannot be anything but... If you're little with God, you cannot be anything but little for God. And... Um, and Cito stresses, you know, the first thing you want to get the guy into is a quiet time. Now, how in the world can you get do the first thing if you say in your, your own heart, I don't have a quiet time? Yeah, and then that's what happened to me. Well, I was a businessman before I went to seminary, and I thought I wanted to serve God. I mean, I didn't have a quiet time when I was a businessman. We had to get up. We had to be in the office at 7 o'clock for the market's opening. And in San Francisco, I barely made it into the office at 7 o'clock, let alone have the quiet time like you're supposed to do it in the morning. Going to seminary, you certainly don't need a quiet time. You're already spiritual enough studying Greek and Hebrew. Why have a quiet time? Then I got with some of you guys and noticed that you were having a quiet time. And I thought I'd try it. Couldn't do it. I tell you, that's the toughest thing for me. I don't know about you. It's like pulling teeth to have a time with God. And here, the first thing we do in this model is get the guy to have a quiet time. Boom, you're, you're dead already. I mean, they can't even get the first base. What, do you want, what are we supposed to do? So you don't get them into a quiet time. Oh, no, you know. <laughs> so so I, had to work on, I had to work on my quiet time. And um, I tell you, it's impossible. I've had, I've had all, some of my best gimmicks. I tell you, I've had to use gimmicks. One of my best gimmicks that is working is to, is to start a prayer journal. Now I write a one-page letter to God every day. And I just bear my heart to Him. Dear Father, my dearest Heavenly Father. And uh, every day, sometimes I don't get it done in the morning, but I've got to write my one-page letter to God. And uh, it helps. And I can look back, and since June 2nd, I can know exactly, when this journal started, I can know exactly how many times I've missed. And I hate to be legalistic about it, but you've got to do it. You know? And, I, and I'm keeping track of it. I've got this one-year Bible, <clears throat> and it's put out by Tyndale, and it's divided up into an Old Testament part, a New Testament part, a psalm, and a proverb, every day. And really short little sections, a lot of variety, you never get bored takes 12, 10 to 15 minutes a day. 365 seconds, uh, sections. Actually, t you, know, you know, based upon my experience of reading that, you know how long, theoretically, it should take to read this Bible? Cover to cover, normal newspaper reading speed. How long does it take to read this book? Anybody know? Any guesses? A couple days with 24 hours a day?
Ten hours to read the Bible, cover to cover? Oh, that's a little, sh yeah, that's a little fast. Pardon me? A month. A month. How many days, how many hours per month? Uh, per day? Twelve. Twelve hours a day times thirty, three hundred sixty hours. Okay, we got ten and three hundred sixty. <laughs> it's, it's someplace in between. Any other guesses? Fifty hours. Fifty? Fifty hours doesn't sound bad. Any other? Well, in this one-year Bible that I'm reading, it takes me less than 15 minutes to read my daily portion. Less than 15 minutes. And if you multiply those 15 times 365, it's 92 hours. That's all it takes to read this Bible. Normal reading speed, cover to cover. It's just 92 hours. And there are many of us out there who have never read it once. And so all it takes is 92 hours. And we got to get the guys into the Bible. Get the guys into the Bible. And you got to have it first for yourself. That's the problem. you got to get it first for yourself. And it's never become more important to me. But now the more I do it, the sweeter it is. And now when I tell a guy to do a quiet time, it's, it's, it's real. It's so good to know and to have that relationship with God. It's so comforting to know he's there. Second thing is character. Character flaws, man. We all got them, you know, whether, it, whether it's name dropping or insecurity or talking too much or not generous or cruel. I don't, I don't know. It's just we got character flaws and we need working. We need, we need to work on our character. And I believe it can be coached. You know, some people don't believe it can be coached. So you just you get some accountability and if you're really... Want you, you want to help? You can. It can really help. Second <clears throat> Timothy two twenty is a good passage. Let me read Second Timothy two twenty. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things. He will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Some of us are, are made of are, are vessels of gold and silver, and some of us are, are wood and earthenware. But that's not the issue. It's, the issue is not the gifts that you have or, or what you have intrinsically, but whether or not you'll be used, used for honorable use or used for ignoble use. You've got to purify yourself so you'll be used for noble purposes. Third uh, limiting factor is vision. And I tell you, in Hong Kong, it's, it's so exciting being there. I mean, we, we got 1997, we got to equip laymen. We're staying low key. We got a perspective. We got a purpose in life. And Bob Adams talked about purpose. That's, you got to have it. You know what is your what is your life going to what are you giving your life for? Is your purpose in life to build an estate so your kids can get spoiled like the Hong Kong kids, or is your purpose in life to invest your life in eternity? I think fourth would be Bible knowledge. I think Bible knowledge is important, but it's not not as important as the first three. But you need you could, Bible knowledge could become a limiting factor in your own ministry. And um, you need to, to really know your way around the Bible. Uh, fifth, I put ministry skills. I mean, you know, the bumbling, clumsiest person can really be used by God. Now, we, we coach ministry skills, but, uh, but uh, it, is not, it is not that important. And the skills, of course, are in the areas of evangelism, the areas in recruiting, I call recruiting and you might call it getting establishing and thirdly in, in training. There's one other, a sixth one, I, I, I put family, you know. If your family's not with you, you've got to really focus on, if you've got a wife that's not going to let people in your home, not going to 
share your heart for people, you know, you, you could be you could be limited there. So you might just have to disciple your wife before you go out and disciple any men. Fortunately, I, I have a wife that's 100% behind me, and she's got a heart for women. And sometimes the combination between the, the women and their husbands, we can work together as a couple. But your wife's got to be with you or you'll be handicapped. And finally, what is the reward? I tell you, I'm, I'm having a ball in Hong Kong. It's, uh, of course, I had a, couple, a little bit of problem in the beginning. And it was, you know, I complained and I didn't think I could stand it out there. But now I tell you, it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know, the humidity didn't go away and the crowds didn't go away. But I just love it. <clears throat> and it really hit home for me when I went back to my uh, firm at uh, <clears throat> Goldman Sachs on July 1st of this year. I was back there uh, interviewing. And uh, I went down the same street to the same Bank of America building, to the same elevator bank, leaned on the same rail that I always leaned on for five years, went up to the same floor, around the same corner, down the same hallway, and saw the same guys there. Of course, I had missed the biggest bull market in the history of the country. But as I started talking to those guys, I was saying to myself, God, thank you. Thank you that you pulled me out of this. Because these guys don't think that they are, me they are mediocre. But from God's point of view, these guys are leading mediocre lives. And it has to do with what you're giving your life for. There's no meaning. Who, you know, the market goes up and down. Who, who can remember the last bear market or what happened on May 6th, 1982? You know, it's all trivial. It, it's going to pass. And these guys are living empty lives. And they're shallow. And they talk about trivial things. And they haven't grown. They, haven't, they don't know God. They don't know the joy of loving people. They're not servants. They're totally into themselves. The only difference between them and I, one big difference is they're wealthier because they they're, they got a lot of money. But I'm telling you, they're empty. And I went, I went from there to another firm where a guy had left my firm of Goldman Sachs and went to Morgan Stanley. He was the number one money earner at Morgan Stanley including all the partners in New York, commissioned salesman, number one money owner. And I interviewed him, and he, he was very, very miserable. He was telling me about how great it is, but you could tell he was searching for meaning in his life. He had, he, he had made so much money, but he felt very insignificant. I'll tell you what significance is. Significance is when you get a guy like Bob Adams to come up and tell people how you were instrumental in, your, in his life. When you get to heaven and you see people there to welcome you into the kingdom. When you have, when you have impacted a human life. What is eternal in this world is human souls and the word of God. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is going to burn. And that is God's definition of mediocrity. You can become the biggest real estate developer in the state and make the cover of a real estate magazine. But if you've just done it for yourself and you're locked into your own selfish purposes and you have not given your life to anything eternal, you are mediocre. You can be the biggest star in the Denver Broncos and win the Super Bowl for them. But if you've just done it for yourself and you have no concept for investing your life in other people and you're so stuck on yourself from God's point of view though you're a great football player you are nothing but mediocre so giving your life to mediocrity is what really frightens me and you don't have to be in Hong Kong to get this sense of meaning you know there are there are there are men all over this town there's meaning in this town when you give your life to them when you get involved in the ministry. That is really, that is meaningful. We do our professions to earn a living. But our prospects are for the kingdom. Those are the real prospects. 
that's meaningful. That gives you purpose in life. That's why you're on earth instead of in heaven. That's what your that's what your purpose is, and God it cuts you in on the action to be a part of the Great Commission. It's the greatest thrill in the world. You just you can ask guys the greatest thrill in the world. You don't have to be in Hong Kong for that, but do not give your life to mediocrity. Okay, I'll close now or I'll open it up to some questions. What do we do, Winston?